So let's uh, start this afternoon's uh, session with some questions. So there are already a few questions that have been uh, raised. Perhaps you can uh, read them. Uh, when we speak about non-revealing form, by whom it cannot be revealed? By the practitioner himself or herself or by somebody else? And can we, with our practice, uh, learn to be able to perceive it? Well, non-revealing non means that uh, it doesn't reveal its motivation to anybody. So it uh, doesn't uh, really uh, deal with the issue of whether it reveals its motivation to ourselves or to others. It's Stop. just a certain energy. At least that's my understanding of it. So it uh, is something that uh, can be known but only by the mind, by mental cognition. It's not something that you can see or hear. Uh, like a dream form, you can only know it by, by your mind. You can't actually see a dream with your eyes. So whether or not when you know it by <coughs> your, excuse me, whether you know it, well, try that again. <coughs> when uh, you uh, are aware let's say, of a non-revealing form of uh, a vow. So what actually are you aware of? You know, I have this vow, and I'm planning to keep it. So I am thinking of the vow. So does it reveal the motivation? Not really. So even if uh, we don't have uh, a uh, vow that is uh, strengthening our Constructive action or a destructive action, you know, constructive action would be to uh, um, refrain from killing, but uh, you can have what's known as a negative vow, which is uh, a vow to uh, kill, to shoot, like when you join the army. So you could be aware that I have taken this vow, or I'm engaged in this type of behavior, you know, I joined the mafia and I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, kill whoever the mafia boss tells me to kill. Still, uh, you're just aware that you have it. I mean, it's not as though uh, it reveals, you know, my motivation for it was fear, or my motivation of it was, you know, join the army to make money or whatever. It doesn't reveal that. There are, by the way, uh, uh, three types of vows that are mentioned in uh, Abhidharma. There's the uh, positive vow, like our you know, uh, uh, monks or nuns or laypersons' uh, vows. Um, <coughs> this negative vow <coughs> that I mentioned. And then uh, also there is uh, something called an interim vow that uh, interim, meaning before you take a full vow, that, uh, for instance, uh, you uh, um, vow that uh, uh, I'm only going to keep part of a vow, let's say, uh, in terms of uh, inappropriate sexual behavior, that uh, some of the forms of it I'm not going to do, like rape somebody uh, or uh, incest, but uh, uh, I can't keep the uh, rest of the uh, aspects of the full vow. So I take an interim vow of uh, just uh, 
refraining from part of the uh, things that one would refrain from with the full vow. Now, of course, we could uh, take a vow for uh, various types of uh, motivation. We could take a vow because uh, uh, the bodhisattva, you know, the bodhisattva vows because uh, we want to attain enlightenment and benefit all beings. We can take the vows for individual liberation. Those are the monastic vows or lay vows because we want to attain liberation from samsara. So we could have a positive, a constructive motivation. But uh, we can also uh, take it for uh, many other type of uh, motivations. You know, all my friends are becoming monks and I want to be with my friends, so I will take the uh, monastic vows. Or uh, I uh, can't get along with the opposite sex and I'm attracted to the same sex, so let me join a same sex uh, uh, community of uh, monks or nuns. There could be all sorts of uh, uh, motivations. But just the fact that we take the vow and we keep the vow doesn't reveal that motivation. And you can join a monastery because your parents told you to. You know, when you were a child, you can join a monastery because you want a free lunch. They give you free food. You won't have to work. Many sort of uh, reasons, motivations. You know, I don't hunt. Well, that, because, that could be because I, I really like hunting, but I know that it is... Uh, destructive and will cause harm, therefore I will refrain from hunting. Or you can take a vow not to hunt because it would never enter my mind to hunt, so it's no big deal. So you see the strength of the motivation, type of motivation, just the fact that you have the vow doesn't uh, reveal that. Are there any other questions about specifically what we've been discussing this morning? There are a few more questions here, but they're not specifically on the topic. Uh, the question is about what is the uh, original word, maybe Sanskrit or whatever, of this non-revealing form. Non-revealing form, right? Uh, the uh, Sanskrit word is uh, uh, for revealing form is prajnapti, and the uh, uh, non-revealing form is aprajnapti. Prajnapti is, if you're into Sanskrit grammar, uh, it's a causative noun. So causing one to know from prajna. So it's something that would cause you to know, to know what? The, the uh, motivation. Uh, someone else? The question is whether the revealing form uh, is a category and non-revealing form is not a category because not a category because it's a dynamic uh, energy. whether the revealing form the revealing form is not the dynamic energy the non-revealing form is the not is the yeah dynamic energy yeah but does it mean that the revealing form is a category no the revealing form is not a category the revealing form is in a specific action the shape of your body as it goes through as it performs the action or the sound of the voice as it speaks the words of the verbal action. So that's a changing phenomenon because each moment when you do something, your hand or your foot is in a different position and as you say the words of your uh, verbal action, each syllable is different. 
So it's changing moment to moment. So a category is like um, a box or something like that in which uh, uh, many, many items fit. So uh, it would be the category, let's say, of uh, killing or stealing. Well, the category itself doesn't do anything, but uh, when uh, somebody, uh, you know, each time that you kill somebody, it fits into the category of being a, of a killing. So you can conceptualize it, you can know it as being a killing. And based on that category, categories have names or words designated on it. So now you can call it, you know, that was a murder because it fits into the category of a killing. So all of that's associated with conceptual thought, categories and words. Uh, the question is, um, when we take the vow, we use our cognition with category. So we use our conceptual cognition because we understand, okay, I'm not going to kill and killing is, and we have the category of killing and so we use our uh, conceptual mind. Mm -hmm. We use categories, right? But then uh, later, somehow it turns into a non-revealing form, uh, and now we have a non-revealing form, which is a subtle form. And also, the question uh, concerns dying process, because when we die, on all our grosser level of consciousness dissolve. But it is said that our vows they can go after death uh, to the uh, new birth. And so, does it mean that they become so subtle that they actually uh, can uh, go through this dying process even though the grosser levels dissolve? When we talk about conceptual cognition, we're talking about thought. So I think that I will take the vows, for example. So we have uh, a, uh, a category, vows. We have some word designated on it. And uh, oh, what we want to do, or what we are presently doing, or what we have done in the past, we would know it conceptually through, uh, what should we say? Category. I mean, let's think of a simpler example. An apple. We have uh, the uh, category apple or the category dog. So that's static. It doesn't do anything, but it helps us to. It's involved in seeing individual pieces of fruit or individual animals and knowing that this is a dog. And this is an apple, even though they might look slightly different. But that doesn't make that individual dog a category or that individual piece of fruit a category. There's nope. a big difference between the static category and the items that uh, fit into the category. So we have a category vow. I'm going to take the vows, or I've taken the vows. But the individual vow is not the category. What was the second part of the question? About the death and whether they okay, dissolve death. with the... Um, now, the uh, uh, vow is a subtle form. It's a non-revealing form. So it's a subtle form of uh, a physical phenomenon. 
So you have Sutra and Tantra, uh, the Nutri Yoga Tantra, highest class of Tantra, explanations. The uh, vows for individual liberation, those are the monastic vows or the lay vows. Those only last for one lifetime because you take them just for one lifetime. Uh, you specify that. But uh, the Bodhisattva vows and the Tantric vows are all the way to enlightenment. I'm not going to give them up until I attain enlightenment. And so they become uh, a very subtle uh, form. And uh, in Sutra, they do accept that there are subtle forms that can continue with the mental continuum into uh, future lives, although they don't really elaborate on that terribly much. But in uh, Nutri Yoga Tantra, highest class of Tantra, then they would say that it would come along with the subtlest uh, energy that supports the clear light mind that goes from lifetime to lifetime. So they would be, uh, in a sense, uh, transported together with that subtle energy, subtlest energy. What happens when uh, we've taken the Bodhisattva vows and we haven't lost them, and we die with them, and we're reborn as a fly. Do we still have the bodhisattva vows? And the answer is yes, but uh, they are dormant. They're still in the subtlest form. And uh, even if you're born as a human, you would have to retake them and uh, re-energize uh, uh, them, in a sense. So that's why, you know, uh, these vows get weaker, you know, when we transgress them, unless, you know, all the factors are complete and you completely give it up. But if you just uh, violate it, transgress it, but uh, you're not happy about that and you regret it, etc., it just weakens the force, that dynamic energy. It weakens it, and that's why you want to always refresh it, renew it. So uh, the uh, verb in Tibetan for uh, uh, when we always say uh, um, generate the motivation, actually it is uh, a, uh, a causative thing. That's why I always say reaffirm your motivation. It's another inflection of the uh, verb. And so it means that you want to strengthen it by you know, reaffirming that this is what I want to do, or you take the vow again and again. Okay. Uh, you had a question? Uh, so the question is about, you mentioned uh, that when we worry and we have uh, doubts, like we have some question in our mind and we cannot resolve it. So we come back to this question and again, again and again. Um, and it is a kind of incomplete. You mentioned this when you were speaking about incomplete karma. The question is what you can suggest uh, to, to solve it, to solve this problem, so it would not uh, bother us. When we have, uh, when we can't come to a decision, then uh, this is uh, called indecisive wavering in terms of the seven ways of knowing things. Uh, either you are wavering toward uh, uh, correct answer, 
I mean, it usually is described in terms of uh, uh, belief in the Dharma, something in the Dharma. Either you're tending more toward the, yeah, it is true, or the correct understanding, or you're tending more toward the incorrect understanding, or you're somewhere in between. Or you see somebody in the distance, and you don't know, it's not clear who it is. Is that Genya or Maxim? You can't really decide. So what you re use is a, another form of cognition, which is to know that in order to make the decision, you need more information. You have to go closer. So that's quite relevant here. When you can't make a decision about what to do or um, what to say, then maybe you need more information in order to make a, an intelligent decision. You know, like you are speaking with somebody and you don't know quite what to say, so you can ask them, well, you know, can you tell me what you mean a little bit more or why did you say that? Get more information. That helps to make the decision. That's a very important uh, um, way of knowing things that uh, we really need to uh, employ, which is to know that we can't really be decisive about something unless we get further information. So if we can't decide, is rebirth true or not? Well, you need more information about how it works, the, who is being reborn, et cetera, et cetera, before you can make a, um, a, decide, you know, a proper decision. But uh, when we're dealing with uh, constructive and destructive uh, behavior, and uh, we are uh, um, thinking to do a constructive or a destructive action, and we can't decide to do it or not do it. You know, should I... Um, this person said nasty things to me at work yesterday. Today, when I go to work, should I say something back to them? This type of decision. You know, I think that's fairly common. So, uh, even there, we could get further information. What did you mean by that? Um, I uh, um, have a problem. So this is the tactic that Thich Nhat Hanh always uh, emphasizes. You go to the person and you say, I have a problem with what you uh, said to me yesterday. It really upset me. Can you help me by, uh, you know, clarifying, explaining why you said that? And so it gives the other person an opportunity to be generous, to offer us an explanation. And it changes the whole dynamic of the situation. So it's based on getting more information, knowing that you need to get more information uh, before you make that decision to say something nasty back to this person or not. You had a question? Uh, so the question is about revealing and non-revealing form. And uh, uh, can we say that they are somehow connected with consciousness and unconsciousness, how we understand them in the West? Uh, can we say that a revealing form is connected with our consciousness and a non-revealing form is connected with our unconsciousness? Uh, yes, you could say that, but uh, I wouldn't formulate it in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, I would be a little bit careful how that is uh, formulated. 
we can be conscious of the feeling form because you can see it or hear it, but uh, we would be unconscious of the non-revealing form. So that's, I think, the way that it would fit into that scheme of conscious, unconscious. So conscious or unconscious has to do with, uh, uh, are we attentive of it? I'm not attentive of this uh, uh, dynamic energy, but uh, I can think about it if I want to. That would be conceptual. So it is an object of mental cognition, but conceptual mental cognition. Yeah, there must be some dynamic energy that's involved with that, but you can't feel it. In theory, if you attained extrasensory perception, which is a, a byproduct of uh, perfect concentration, and you focused on <laughs> you know, this non-revealing form, in theory, with your ESP, you should be able to know it non-conceptually because you have absolutely no mental wandering, no dullness, you know, blah, you know you're totally focused on it. But uh, I don't know for sure if that's the case. It, it, it seems as though from theory that should be possible. But, you know, you have to, in order to understand that question, I mean, to answer that question, you uh, need to uh, uh, go a little bit further in the direction of the seven ways of knowing. So, for instance, uh, inference. I can infer, which is mental consciousness and conceptual, that my vows are weak. So, my vows are an object of mental consciousness. It's conceptual based on a line of reasoning that, well, looking at my conduct and how, you know, I've gotten sort of around the vows and not really kept them very purely and so on, I can infer that my vows are weak. So is that being conscious or unconscious of the vows? I mean, the Western categories, you know, the conceptual framework of conscious and unconscious doesn't really fit into that. So in other words, there are many different ways in which our mental consciousness could take as an object the non-revealing forms of uh, vows or even uh, you know, weaker than that, just the non-revealing form of uh, our behavior. You know, this uh, raises this whole issue of uh, mixing systems. You know, we were saying that uh, you can't really mix Prasangika and Chittamacha very harmoniously. Well, similarly, you can't mix a Buddhist explanation with a Western psychological uh, explanation very easily. The uh, categories with which you conceptualize don't overlap, not at all, in, many, in most cases. Uh, the question is about uh, yesterday you mentioned the definition of karma uh, being that it is the compulsion. Mm -hmm. But I would understand compulsion as um, uh, compa comparing with this uh, fourth aspect of the second noble truth, which is, not sure what is the English, some sort of uh, enforced generation or something. The fourth aspect of the second noble truth. Uh, when, w uh, the, uh, when they speak about really strong intentions, 
and then that implies that if our intention is not very strong it means it's not karma because it's not compulsive enough well if you uh, karma does not exist all by itself Karma arises for various causes and conditions and also uh, uh, leads to various aftermath, various results from it. So when we look at the whole issue of karma, we need to look at the whole uh, issue of uh, a uh, compulsive repetition of certain patterns of behavior. I can formulate it like that. So we have uh, a uh, um, habitual way of behaving. And that habitual way of behaving, which is reinforced by repetition, this is what this fourth aspect is uh, of uh, true causes is referring to. So it's reinforced, gets stronger by repetition of a certain pattern of behavior. So that could be destructive type of behavior. It could be constructive type of behavior. It could be unspecified type of uh, uh, behavior. So if it's destructive, it's uh, motivated by disturbing emotion. If it's uh, uh, constructive, it's motivated by either no disturbing emotion or a positive emotion. And if it's unspecified, neither, none of these things are involved. But all of them have grasping for a self-established me as part of the motivating you know, mental framework. So a destructive action is uh, I hit you. So I hit you, you know, with the intention to hurt you because there's a destructive emotion. I don't like you. I'm angry with you. So there's the big me there. You know, you hurt me. I don't like you. I'm going to, you know, hurt you. Big emphasis on me. Then the constructive action, I uh, 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 refrain from hitting you. So that could be because I... Uh, uh, don't want to act under the influence of anger, so non-anger. Doesn't mean that we're completely liberated from anger. Just, you know, I'm not going to act under the influence of anger. Or it could be uh, uh, um, that uh, I want to help you. You know, I don't want to hurt you. But there's still me. Why do I want to do that? Because I want to be good. I'm a good person. I don't do things like that. The big me that's still there. I don't want you to dislike me. I don't want you to hurt me back. Then an unspecified action like uh, I eat lunch at uh, one o'clock and I always have soup with my lunch. Well, behind that is, well, that's the way that I am. That's, I always eat lunch at, third, at, at one o'clock. I don't want to eat lunch at two o'clock. That's too late. And I always want to have soup with my lunch. 
So, I mean, there's a strong me that's behind this. You know, this is who I am. This is what I, you know, that's the way that I lead my life. You better accept it. <laughs> so it's unspecified. I'm just eating at noon with soup. I mean, eating at one. You know, that's the way I do things. So in all of those actions, there's an intention. Now, the intention is to hurt you. The intention is not to hurt you. The intention is to eat my lunch at 1 o'clock. There's always an intention. So what affects the strength of the karma is the strength of the um, motivating emotion. You know, is it a little bit of uh, attachment, a lot of attachment? Is it a little bit of anger, strong anger? That's going to affect the strength of the, uh, of the karma. It will affect the strength of your action, you know, of, not of action, but of the words you say, the sound of your voice, it's going to affect that. Are you a little bit angry or are you really outraged? It's going to affect the energy of it as well. And what affects the strength of the intention is uh, um, the amount of suffering that what you would do would cause the person. So I'm going to uh, um, hit you or I'm going to kill you. You know, I'm going to say some strong words about you or I'm going to say, you know, really nasty things about your mother. <laughs> you know, there's many different, you know, if I want to hurt you, what I intend to, how I intend to do that could vary in strength according to how much suffering it will cause you. Okay. Maybe time for one last question. Uh, am I right that uh, unless we have the correct understanding of voidness, uh, all our action of all three categories will be compulsive? Uh, and uh, which means that anything we do, if we don't have understanding of voidness, it is based on karma and compulsion. We, uh, this gets a little bit complicated, as always. We are, uh, it has to do with the uh, obscurations of karma and when do we achieve a true stopping of them. We uh, uh, gain liberation from uh, uh, karma and the uh, tendencies of uh, karma, karmic tendencies with liberation. But uh, we only get rid of the constant habits of karma which cause us to have limited cognition, not omniscience, when we become enlightened. So we only uh, 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 progress toward that in stages. So we can reach a certain stage, and I don't remember the exact stage of which bumi or which path it is, where you don't accumulate any more uh, negative karmic potential. You reach a certain point where you can no longer uh, uh, be reborn in, a, in one of the lower realms. I mean, so it is gradual that you achieve uh, a stopping of uh, certain aspects of karma. But the whole thing, not until you're, you know, the main thing when you are uh, an arhat and the full package when you're a Buddha. Now, I have to bring up an important point in terms of you know, uh, this will come when we discuss uh, later the uh, results, not the results, but the aftermath of our karmic behavior. And uh, 
one of the uh, things that we, uh, uh, results, there's an aftermath that continues with our mental continuum, is the so-called collection of merit. We'll get technically what that actually is. It's a network of positive forces, how I prefer to uh, refer to it. So there are three types of network of positive force. One has no dedication at all. That's the default setting that it will just contribute to a nicer samsara. That's our usual, you know, so-called good karma, like dedicating it to make a lot of money, something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm being generous so that other people will give me money. Then there's positive force dedicated to attaining liberation, and there's positive force dedicated with bodhicitta to attaining enlightenment. Right, according to a commentary by Hari Bhadra, an Indian master, on uh, uh, this topic, he says that that Sanskrit word, which is usually translated as collection or network, actually means something that builds something up. So it builds up toward nicer samsara, builds up toward liberation, builds <laughs> up toward enlightenment. So the definitional network of positive force that will contribute, enlightenment, enlightenment building network of positive force. The, the definitional one is the one that you have when you attain unlabored bodhicitta, which means that you don't have to rely on the seven part cause and effect and you know all of that to uh, generate it. You just bam, you have it all, you know, instantly all the time or unconsciously all the time, but it's there all the time. And with that, you attain the first of the five pathway minds, the mind that is called building up pathway of mind. So it's building up more and more to combine shamatha and vipassana, it's the definition. So path of accumulation, it's not something you walk on, it's a level of mind that is building up now toward that uh, attainment. So that's, that's definitional, bodhicitta. Right. When you have that level of bodhicitta, and that will contribute to your attainment of enlightenment. And notice that you don't have to have non-conceptual cognition of voidness yet. That's the seeing pathway of mind, the path of seeing. So it could still be conceptual understanding of voidness. So before you attain that level of unlabored bodhicitta and a building up pathway of mind, or bodhisattva, <clears throat> you have what's known as facsimile network of enlightenment building positive force. It's like it, but not quite the, the definitional thing, but still it will contribute to your enlightenment. So in a sense, part of your positive force will improve your samsara on the way to enlightenment because you need precious human rebirths and stuff like that. So you, you certainly want to uh, guarantee that you have this samsaric ripening, but also it will contribute to actually attaining enlightenment. So you shouldn't put down the positive karma aspect because you're going to need that precious human rebirth and meeting the gurus and all these sort of things along the path, all the way. So we'll uh, take our break and thank you for these really excellent questions.